going? No, man, you got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me, my friend. <clears throat> hey, look, here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. Morning, you're watching The Road to Concord with Professor Joel Bakanovic. Homeroom is on Rumble. You just go to Rumble and you search the channels for The Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. Not mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast, it's easy, and it's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and sometimes on YouTube like today. And usually just Worship Wednesdays. Then you can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page. That's roadtoconcord.com. That's where you find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at the road to concord.com. He's a little slow right now, but he'll eventually get around to emailing you back. If you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Just warn them, Joe is an acquired taste. Hey, we all know T.A. Charlie isn't all there. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. You soon realize we not might be the smartest. But we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. We're free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. Lesson plan for today is Daniel's 70 weeks. Good morning, Worship Wednesday. We're continuing in Ellis Schofield's study on prophecy, his slide presentation of his books, The Hidden Beast and Sozo, Hidden Beast 2. Um, this is uh, Ellis Schofield, S-K-O-L-F-I-E-L-D. He was called home, I think, 2012, 2014, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, this is not the Schofield of the Schofield Bible. There's no relation, totally different spelling, a couple hundred years separation and everything, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Brother Schofield, um, he studied and prayed for like, I think if you read the Fort and uh, Hidden Beast 2, it's like 12 years before he actually started understanding all of the stuff that he's sharing with the church. We go through it, and, and like everything else, um, he sees as through a mirror dimly, you know, to paraphrase Paul. But he sees more clearly than most of the church does as to what the prophecies mean for the end times. And that's mostly because Brother Schofield tried to let the prophets interpret themselves tried to learn the prophetic language rather than looking at scripture through the lens of the traditions and teachings of men. So we've been going through this slideshow. You can get it on your homework. Um, go to the road to concord.com, the blog page, and you'll, you'll find the link just put in there, you know, Schofield or um, end times, it, it, do a search. You'll find the link. It's in the, it's also in the description on rumble and it's in the top of the notes at uh on Twitch, uh, Facebook, and um, Road to Con—I mean, uh, YouTube. So just follow it. it. You can download the PDF and go along with this if you want. It's like 499 pages, and we're going to be starting out on page 371 today. So we might as well get ourselves going here. Yeah, I'm a little more down to earth today. I'm not as manic as I was yesterday and Monday. That's probably a good thing. It's more apropos and fitting to the day's work. So, well, right there, you see, if you're watching the chalkboard, 
77s, Daniel's 77s. And remember, unless he says otherwise, Brother Schofield quotes out of a King James Bible, not New King, King James, which sometimes drives me nuts. But here is, uh, it starts out with two Hebrew words, Shabuyim and, uh, all right, Charlie, <laughs> you say them. Shabuyim, Shab, Shab, oh, Shavim, sorry. Shavim, okay, so not a B, a V. Yes. Okay. There's no dot in there, so there's oh, no dot God, if, if, if it had been an F, I mean, you'd been told me we were speaking German, I might have figured it out. All right. Anyhow, these two words are going to be important to us. With the 70-year captivity over, Gabriel tells Daniel, this is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. He says, 70 weeks, and it's actually 77s, and we've, Charlie's free to jump in here whenever he wants today. He's our he, local resident Hebrew scholar, but he's already been through this more than once and he reviewed it again today. And for the most part, he's happy with Brother Schofield's Hebrew. So unless he's got something he wants to jump in on, or unless I throw him in on the show, <laughs> comment on the board. It says, anyone else think we should have class where Charlie teaches us Hebrew? That's Natasha. <laughs> well, maybe one day no. we'll see. <laughs> So Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 26, 70 weeks, actually 77s are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Okay. This is Schofield pointing something out to us. The addresses are stated. This prophecy was written while the Jews were captive in Babylon. It is in the old Testament in Hebrew. So who do we suppose it's about? It's about the Jews and their holy city. It's not to or about the church. Now, here's where I want to stop and add my little two cents. Brother Schofield does not understand the married and divorced bride. It's okay. That wasn't for him to see. But he's he's in the ballpark. He's just up in the cheap seats of center field. He does see it. He just doesn't see it. that He sees it as the church and the Jews. What you're looking at here. If we were to correct this, it says this address is stated. The prophecy was written while the house of Judah was still captive in Babylon. It is in the Old Testament written in Hebrew. So who do you suppose it's about? It's about the house of Judah and their holy city. It's not about the house of Israel and those grafted in. That would make it more accurate in my understanding. Oldfield says, he continues quoting the scriptures here. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for inequity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, all but one fulfilled by the cross. Now, I want to make a comment here real quick. He probably will address some of this later in the, if I remember correctly, because I've read in advance today, but I think a lot of this he leaves out. Let's read this again. To finish the transgression. I'm not exactly sure what that talks about right there. There's many possible understandings of that. But to make an end of sins. He's not ending sin. He's ending the penalty for sin with the new, what will become the new covenant. This is what the 77s is doing. And to make reconciliation for inequity, for our uncleanliness. This is to make propitiation for sin and so that we can be brought back into fellowship with the Father back into the kingdom to bring everlasting righteousness. That's the new kingdom in the renewed kingdom of Yahweh and to seal up the vision and prophecy. That's very important right there, folks. 
Because when the New Testament says many people are going to prophesy, you know, many sons and daughters will prophesy, prophesy. They're not talking about prophecy the way it was in the Old Testament. That new covenant representation means you will rightly divide the law. If you're foretelling prophecy now, you're violating this passage right here because it seals up the visions and prophecies. And something that might be the case here, I don't know for sure. I'd have to look at this some more, but you know, you talk about transgression and sin. Um, sometimes when it talks about this, there's where you have sinning and ignorance because you don't know. And then there's willful rebellion. Yes. And there's a difference there. <laughs> so um, there's a lot going on here, brother Schofield's only focusing on his little piece of it. So Daniel nine, 24 through 26 is continued. It says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, this is Artaxerxes' decree, 444 to 445 BC, unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks. That's a Shavuim or Shavuim. Uh, Shavuim. Shavuim. The male plural form of seven to these weeks or sevens are not ordinary 24-hour days. These are prophetic days, prophetic years. And three, it'll be, um, it'll be seven and three score and two weeks. The streets shall be built again, and the wall, even in troubled times, and this is fulfilled in Nehemiah 2.8, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, in other words, killed, but not for himself. And the people of the satanic prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end, therefore, shall be with a flood, a flood of foreign people, Revelation 17, 15. And unto the end of the war, the war between God and Satan, Satan, desolations are determined. So he's got a note in here. Shavuim is used only four times in the Old Testament, all of them in Daniel. Three in the 70 weeks and once in Daniel 10. So we will continue with Brother Schofield's slide presentation. Here's another one of his pictures. The 69 weeks from 444 BC, where the issue to rebuild the city is decreed. We have these 62 weeks. These are years, prophetic years. It gets us to 32 to 34 AD. Now, Joe, that's, that's, that's only 62 years. No, that's not right. Uh, but it is. These are Sabbath years. And I don't think he goes over that in great detail in the slide presentation. I wish he had, but he does the math for you. And this does work when you understand. This is why I tell you, if you're really interested in this, you need to go read The Hidden Beast 2. That's where he is most clear and most detailed in the explanation of his thinking here. But this does work, folks. If you've heard, remember what I've told you before. This slide presentation is mostly just a reminder, and it's a it's a cue card for him. This was designed for him to give in-person um, presentations with churches. So everything is not all explained in here. He does a lot of it verbally. That's what I'm doing is very imperfectly, I am trying to substitute for Mr. Schofield because I have been through his book many times, and he has won me over to a lot of his thinking. His next slide, he says, the 70th week is different. 
Now, John H. Darby of the Plymouth Brethren invented the seven-year Great Tribulation from this verse. And we've already been through this, been through why the seven-year Great Tribulation, what I call the Tim LaHaye left behind stuff. It starts with John H. Darby and some other people, but it's all garbage. It's not scriptural. It is not based in scripture, period. We've been through that in a previous show. Here's Mr. Schofield's going to continue. He says, and he, this is above satanic prince, possibly Satan himself. He shall confirm the covenant with many, many Jewish people for one week, Shavuah, a different word, the singular form of seven. So this week is not the same as the prior 69 weeks. Here is where word study does come into play. He says, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Make what desolate? As Schofield puts a question in there. Even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Poured upon the desolate. This is Daniel 9.27. That one verse, that's where a lot of mankind's fascinations and fantasies about end times eschatology comes from if you read it scripturally you can't support the left behind james darby or john darby or whatever darby version of you can't do the tim lahay left behind version of of end times it just doesn't work so brother schofield says a different seven the hebrew word for seven used in 69 weeks is shavuim which is different from the word used for the 70th week, which is Shavuah for the 70th week. It's different in kind than the 69. If the same word had been used, then each day of the 70th week would also be a year. But since the word is different, the 70th week must be viewed in a different way. The 70th week must be described as a time other than seven years. But how long can this week be? This is where things get fun. Let's look at a literal translation of Daniel 9.27. This is from Green's Interlinear. And its end with the flood, and that is a parenthetical here, of foreign people, Revelation 17.15. And until end, war are determined desolations, and he shall confirm a covenant with the many weak one, and in the half of the week he shall make cease sacrifice and offering and upon a wing abomination, a desolator, even until the end, that which was decreed shall pour out on the desolator. This is a literal word-for-word translation. This is why it reads so weird. You need somebody who understands Hebrew, from, biblical Hebrew from a biblical cultural perspective to gloss this over and make it make more sense in the English. It probably reads better to me than it will to most of you because I've been doing this for a little while now and it's starting to actually, I'm getting to where I prefer literal translations because I'm understanding enough about, I don't read Hebrew, but I'm understanding enough about the way the Hebrew mind worked and the culture worked that this actually reads easier for me. It, it'll take time before most of you will get there. Schofield has a little comment down here. The Hebrew word for seven used in this verse, Shavuah, is different than the Shavuim of the prior 69 weeks. And he says, 69 carrots are not the same as one onion. In like manner, the 70th week is different in kind. Since each day of the 69 weeks represents a year, then each day of the 70th week cannot be a year. 
but must be either seven literal 24-hour days or symbolize a much longer period of time. So 69 times seven, that's, you know, that's how many years you had between the decree and the cross. How many years is this 70th week? Is it just seven, you know, is it just seven times? Is it one times seven? Is it seven years? Well, let's see. Now here is a believe it or not. The translators of the NIV got it right. Now he is using an NIV Bible from before the NIV went off the rails. If you're using an NIV Bible published after 1984, be very careful with that thing. If you're reading one published after the year 2000, in my opinion, it's no longer a Bible. But anyway, this is a decent translation. This is exactly how my 1984 NIV reads. It says, and its end, this is Daniel 9, 26 and 27, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined, but he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. But in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And one who causes desolations will place abominations on a wing of the temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Wing of the temple, abomination that causes desolation. Here's a picture of the temple mount. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and one who causes desolations will place abominations on a wing of the temple. Daniel 9, 27 from the NIV. Look where the Dome of the Rock is. It is literally on a wing of the temple in the court of the Gentiles, the old court of the Gentiles. This right here, you see on your looking on the board, this is the Dome of the Rock Mosque. This is the Dome of the Tablets up here in the right-hand corner. That is probably where the Holy of Holies used to sit. That is a flat stone, threshing stone. The stone under this is a crag. Notice where the Holy of Holies, if it's the Dome of the Tablets, if that's, it lines up with this down here, the Golden Gate, the Eastern Gate, exactly like it should. And then off this area over here somewhere, if you're watching the board, you see where my cursor's flying around? Somewhere in there, they found the royal uh, cubit embedded, uh, drilled into the bedrock. That would, that's only going to be where the temple is. So this is a picture. This is the plan of the first temple superimposed on the temple mount platform right in this area. This is probably a good understanding of what we're reading in Daniel. This over here, this, the Dome of the Rock is the abomination that causes desolation. And it literally is blasphemous, but it's standing in the old um, court of the Gentiles. So Muslims would have been allowed to be there in the ancient times when the temple was still in operation. Here is Daniel 12, 11 again. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. We already know this abomination is the Dome of the Rock. That's 583 B.C. to 688 A.D., 1,290 Hebrew years. Okay, that works. I like that. Now he's going to start doing a little bit of word math for you. The Hebrew word translated abomination is, all right, Charlie, in you go. Get yourself on here. What's the word? Shiku. Well, actually, it's shikutzim is what it says 
up there, which is plural, so it's abominations. He he puts shikuts or whatever in English, but uh, the word he's actually showing there is abominations, which is plural. It's still going to work for yeah, our case. Yeah, it works fine. And then the Hebrew word translated desolation is? Uh, <clears throat> Mishomem. Which is spelt a little differently here. Remember, yeah. Charlie actually knows his real Hebrew. And in Daniel 12, 11, we find the abomination that maketh desolate is? Yeah. Shikuts yeah, ha shamam. Okay. Actually, it would be shomam. So, but we're doing okay here, right? We're 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 happy with brother. Yeah, I Schofield. wish they just put the Hebrew there for me, but <laughs> but we're happy with brother Schofield. Okay. Yes. Since Shikutz Hashem and Shamam in Daniel twelve eleven is Dome of the Rock, then Shikutz and Shamam in Daniel nine twenty seven should also be the Dome of the Rock, don't you think? If we're going to follow parallel thinking, that would that work. Makes sense. All right. So it appears that the 70th week stretches into the past and future from that point, from the construction of the Dome of the Rock Mosque. So now he's going to take us here. It says, once we recognize that Daniel's 70th week is actually about the Dome of the Rock, all support for a future seven-year tribulation goes up in smoke because Daniel 9.27 is the only verse in the whole Bible from which that idea could be concocted. And he's correct. Schofield's correct about that. The identification of the Dome of the Rock as the abomination that maketh desolate is confirmed by the day year of Revelation 11, 2 through 3, 12, 6, and 13, 5. We've already gone over these, folks. The historic date of its construction is accepted by all, and the mathematics is irrefutable. Since the 70th week does not appear to be about John Darby's seven-year Great Tribulation invention, what can it really be about? We need to stand in Daniel's shoes and view this prophecy from his Jewish perspective, House of Judah, then Southern Kingdom. Daniel is a godly Jew, House of Judah. He was immersed in the law of Moses. He fully understood the Levitical code. Folks, what we are about to get into is one of the reasons you need to keep the Sabbaths, plural. Shabbat time, I believe, is correct. Isn't that right? Um, if I've got my... Language there? Well, Charlie? okay. <laughs> All right. Rabbit, folks. Shabbat time is the dual of Shabbat. Okay, so. Like this this coming weekend, we have what's called a Shabbat time, which means it's a double Shabbat. Uh, to be a just a plural of, of Shabbats, you know. As we yeah, would plural say, Sabbaths. Three or more. That would be... Uh, Shabbatim. Okay, Shabbatim. Yes. But we do know as a fact that that is mentioned in Scripture, and it includes more than just the seventh-day Sabbath. It includes oh, yes. all yes. the feasts, all the jubilees. It includes all the um, Shemitahs. Shemitahs, yep. Shemitahs. Folks, if you don't understand these things, you are not going to get what you're about to cover oh, here today. Well, you're is... not even going to be able to understand Daniel's 70th, 70th week, not even come close. Yeah, this is all, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> had, had Israel followed these things, oh my gosh, they, they would be such a blessed nation. It would be. Yes, they'd be the crazy. light of the world. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Charlie. This is why it's important to hold to some of the things in the Old Testament, folks. You're not going to understand Daniel's 70th week unless you understand this pattern. Let me show you. 
the Levitical code first, one seven of years. So a week, right? Second, followed by six more sevens of years. So what I have here is a week, and then I have a Shemitah, a final unique Jubilee year with 360 Sabbaths. So I have a one week, a Shemitah, a Jubilee. There's a pattern there that Daniel would have seen very clearly. Boom, right in his face. He'd have understood this. The reason that, you know, the prophet had to lay on one side for 40 years, on another for so many other years or whatever, he was laying on his side one year for every jubilee that Israel had ignored. This is important, folks. This is very, very important. Daniel's 70 weeks, the first seven of sevens, you know, the, the seven sevens of weeks, the seven Shavuim, and then second is followed by 62 more sevens of weeks. In a final unique week, this what this is all about is giving Daniel a pattern that he can use to interpret this time period in his weeks. That's the key. It's the decoder ring. The numerical progression in the Levitical code and the 70 weeks is the same. One seven, a multiple of sevens with a unique time at the end. The Levitical code had a 50-year cycle which ended with a jubilee year of 360 Sabbaths. The 70th week also ends with a unique seven, each year of which should have 360 Sabbaths. So should the last unique Shavuot be multiplied by 360? Let's see what happens if we do that. Daniel's 70th week. Since con contextual weeks require multipliers and a jubilee year has 360 Sabbaths, could the multiplier for the 70th week be 360? If so, 360 times 7 is 2,520 prophetic years, 2,484 solar years. So from the decree, 536 BC to 1948, that is 2,520 Hebrew years. Would you look at that? And what's right in the middle? Dome of the Rock Mosque. What happened when they built the Dome of the Rock Mosque on the Temple Mount? Up to that point, the Jews were still offering sacrifices on the Temple Mount. The Levites were still in operation. They were still sacrificing. We know this. We have recorded history of that. You even, if you're reading the book, The Hidden Beast 2, if you're reading the book, he goes over, you've, you've got hints of this even in your scriptures. There's a point where it says that Babylon took away the last of the people that were in Jerusalem. And he mentions a special number. It's like 700 and something. It was probably the last of the priests. So they were still sacrificing up until they Babylon came and took them away. This is the first temple. And then they come back. And we know that they reestablish under Ezra and Nehemiah and everything. They get, they get the temple going again. We know we get another temple built, second temple period. We know that's destroyed in 70 AD. But we know from other recordings in history that the Levites, just like they did prior to and after the exile of Babylon, they go back to sacrificing on the temple. They may not have a temple, but they've they they cleanse the ritually cleanse the temple mount. And they go back to sacrificing. That's what this is. But once the Dome of the Rock Mosque is built, you can no longer offer oblations and sacrifices because you literally have. An antichrist, anti-Yahweh abomination standing on that temple mount that needs to be removed because you no longer have a temple. So without the temple, you don't have a court of the Gentiles. 
So now all you have is all of Mount Moriah. If you understand the theological ideology here, this works beautifully. This, this understanding is just perfect Hebrew thinking. It also lines up with the world history. So the mathematical probability of this prophecy predicting right to the year, an event that was 2,484 years in the future, with the Dome of the Rock in the middle, is zero, unless it is the correct interpretation. The to-the-year to accuracy, accuracy of the timeline in both Daniel and Re Book of Revelation are beyond comprehension, were it not that the Spirit of God inspired them. Remember, if you've been with us, we've already done this before once in Revelation using the same formula, prophetic formula. So we've got two points in Scripture where that formula both line up with the exact same world event histories. That, that's two witnesses, folks. That's all we scripturally need. It's the same formula, two different places in the Bible, winds up with the same results. So he said, let's read that verse again. This final seven was fulfilled in 1948 by the new nation of Israel, which, quote, seals up this vision in prophecy. Daniel 9, 27, NIV again. But he, the satanic prince, the prince who is to come, will confirm a covenant with many, the Jewish people, the house of Judah, for one seven, 2,520 prophetic years or 2,484 solar years. But in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering by making the Temple Mount spiritually desolate. And one which causes desolation, the satanic spirit behind Islam, will place abominations, the Dome of the Rock, on a wing of the temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, does that not fit scripture and the recorded history a whole lot better? I tend to say, yes, it does. Now, right here is where we're going to stop for a moment. You need to understand something else. I'll tell you that these patterns can be found in many places. If you go and you look at the history of what Antiochus or Antiochus or whatever you want to pronounce his name is, he did the same thing. He made a covenant with the Jews and he split it right in the middle and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. So the pattern is there. But this is a different pattern. This is, this is, a, this is a prophetic pattern dealing with years and times. Antiochus was a prophetic pattern dealing with a man and his actions. Again, sorry, if you can find it, that's the book you want right there. The Hidden Beast 2. He's got another book that's pretty much the same material, but he doesn't walk you through it holding your hand as much. It's called Sozo. If that's the only book you can find or afford, it'll still get you there. It's better than our slideshow, but it's not as good as this. I have the first book, The Hidden Beast. It's, he's not got it all down yet. That was written a few years before this one. I have The Hidden Beast too, and I have Sozo, and I have the slideshow, and I've been through all of them more than one time. This is the one you want if you can find it. It's not perfect. Whenever he starts talking about Rome, I'd put that away. He understands a lot more about Islam by the time this slide is made, the slide presentation is made. That cleared things up for him a lot. But the patterns and the history and the formula he's using, he will walk you through that, hold your hand and walk you right through it in the book. Very good job there. So this is going to be one of these days where you might actually get two breaks because we've got two more things that we might be able to cover today. We're going to start 
We've gotten through the hardest part of this slide presentation now. We're down to where we've got 111 slides left to do. We're going to start high-stepping it a bit, picking up the pace. What's next is the introduction to the seals and trumpets. We're going to go over this slideshow. Then I'm going to give you a six-minute break. And then we'll see how, see how much of this we can get through. Hopefully, we might get through the seals and the trumpets today. Because the next section, that, that'll probably be the last little sticky wicket we got to get through. But this is where things start getting to be really interesting. This is where everything we've been doing so far on this slideshow starts to come together. Let's see what we've got. This is, the, this is slide uh, 388. Introduction to the seals, trumpets, and bowls. The book of Revelation is the two-sided scroll given to Jesus in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The first chiasm, chapters 2 through 11, is read by Jesus. And it contains four parallel prophecies and two parenthetics. They are God the Father's view of the spiritual conditions on earth during what we call the Christian era, or also the tribulation. The little book of Revelation is handed to John in Revelation 10, verse 9. John then reads the second chiasm. This is chapters 12 through 20. He said, you must prophesy again. The leopard bear lion beast, the scarlet beasts, the bulls of wrath, and the thousand years. The second chiasm is primarily about the material world, i.e. the holy land and the surrounding nations during the Christian era. The seals, trumpets, and bowls are not explained earlier in this slide presentation because their messages are difficult to understand unless the day, years, and chiasmic structure of Revelation are covered first. That's what we've been doing all this time, is laying the foundation to get into what we're about to tackle. Though various interpretations of these parallel prophecies are possible, all three are figurative, and all three are fulfilled during this era. Notice what Brother Schofield just told us. He said, there are different interpretations that are possible. Some of them might be and, not or. It might be that there are multiple equally valid ways of looking at these prophecies, that there's more than one way for them to be fulfilled without causing a contradiction or breaking continuity of Scripture. Don't limit Yahweh, folks. But the first part of the chiasm, the first chiasm, the spiritual conditions on earth during the Christian era, that chiasm is written to Yahweh's people, God's people. The second one is about the material world. That one's written to the Gentiles, to the non-believers. And the two chiasms are sort of roughly parallel. And there's a chiasm dealing with the trumpets and the seals, and it's parallel with the with the bowls of wrath. And like I said, I, I have not... I wish I could find it again. I'm going to have to sit down and replot it all on my own. When you see this charted out in a graph form, the chiasms and the bifid and the parallelism, this is beautiful. This is an intricate piece of linguistic and literate literature and prophecy and theology, scriptural. This is just a tapestry that is beyond human hands to weave. It just, it just is. Once you understand it the way it's it's simple and it's complicated all at the same time. This thing's gorgeous once you understand how to read it. And there is a proper way to read it. You have to read it as a Torah observant Hebrew who understands the Hebrew culture, liter literary culture as well. 
if you can't read it that way, you're going to read it like a Greek. You're going to make it linear. You're going to make it more concrete, less uh, theological, less spiritual, less figurative. And you will, will, capital W-I-L-L, will get it wrong. Guaranteed. Because it wasn't written to the Greeks. I do believe scripture says, I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, and against your sons, O Greece. In other words, Yahweh's people versus the rest of the world. So when we come back from the break, we are going to start right here. This is slide 389 if you've got the presentation at home. We're going to go into the seven seals. I'll do the seven seals, then we'll see what time it is. If we have time, we'll take another break, and we'll come back, and we'll do the seven trumpets. These are a little lengthy and a little complicated, but we're at a point now where if you've been following with us, it should start being easy to easier to follow along. Remind you again, this whole study in Schofield's work is just meant to wet your whistle. This is not to teach you and batten it all down for you. This is to get you going back and doing the work for yourself. So we'll see you in six minutes.
got to get ourselves moving here. This is one of these days where I'm really glad to have Charlie on board because he's helping me keep this show moving along a little better. Um, I can't watch the board at all when I'm doing this. We're going to go right into the seven seals. And when we do this, the, the, this is one of your chiasms in Revelation. We're going to get to a section here where Brother Schofield differs in the slideshow from what his thinking was when he wrote Hidden Beast 2. Now, you got to remember, there's 22 years between the two. 22 years between when he wrote Hidden Beast 2 and then when he did the slideshow. His thinking and his, un his understanding, his information, his revelations, these things all change. We grow as we get older. And this is one case where I think he overthought himself. And you'll, you'll see in a minute, I'll get there to, for you. It's one case where he might, might should have held to his older understanding a little better. But we'll get to that in just a minute. I'll walk you through this. First slide here, the Greek, Hepta, seven. Also, Sphargis or whatever, seven seals. The seals are the first chiasm. This is an ABC, CBA chiasm. Oh, yeah. Real quick. Charlie had a really good idea. Let me do this real fast. If you have not been with us for a while, especially the class in bifids and chiasms, it's time to check out today, boys and girls, brothers and sisters. Bye-bye. We'll see you later. Go catch up. You need those previous classes. If you have not got them under your belt, you're not going to track with this very well from this point forward. It's not that you're stupid. I'm not saying that. It's not that you don't understand scripture. I'm not saying that. It's like what Schofield said just a minute ago in one of the slides. You need this foundation of chiasms and bifids and prophetic years, day years, in the prophetic language. You've got to get that under your belt first. We did 370-something slides in this presentation just to get the foundation built for you. Now we're going to, you know, it was, it was three-fourths of his presentation is the setup. Now he delivers the fastball. Now he's going to put the batter down. Here's where it comes. So, yeah, if you haven't done that, you need to. So the first A to A is chapters 2 to 3 and verse in chapters 11. This is about the seven churches in 2 to 3, 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3. That's about the church. And it's about the two witnesses in chapter 11, the church. The two witnesses is clearly the house of Judah and the house of Israel. We've been over that show. Quit looking for two human beings. That is not in the Bible. Then chapters, the B to B, chapter six, the seven seals, Christian era trials. Chapter eight and nine, the seven trumpets, Christian era trials. And each seal and trumpet are parallel to each other. Chapters seven, verses four through eight, the 144,000. It's the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob. Chapter seven, verses nine through 14, a great multitude, the Gentile church. So the 144,000 might very well be the house of Judah. And then 9 through 14, the great multitude might very well be the house of Israel. We have to look at that. But what's important is Revelation's prophecies are concurrent. All are fulfilled during the Christian era and all at the same time, or at least the same time, the epoch. Now, the four horsemen, as that Schofield sees them and understands them, understands them. They are God the Father's figurative view of the spiritual conditions on earth during the Christian era. That does not mean there won't be war and famines and, and that does not mean there won't be physical manifestations. There will be. We should just see on earth as in heaven. But let's look and see what Brother Schofield has for us here. He says, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, 
And I heard, the lamb is Jesus, and I heard, as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. Jesus' weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. So this is not Jesus. Hold on to that for a second. And a crown was given unto him, ungodly government leaders that people gladly follow through the Christian era. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. That is possibly one way to see this. There is another. Brother Schofield knew this in his book. He's changed since the book of Hidden Beast 2 to this point in the slideshow. Here is the other one. This is on the Bible gateway. This is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. It says, for I will bend Judah as my bow. This is Yahweh. I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I will stir up your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. So the sword and the bow are parallel here. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and march in the storm winds of the south. That's the trumpet of God. That is the seventh trumpet. This passage right here is all up in Revelation. There is another way to see this. It says, and I saw and behold a white horse. Other than this passage, the only other time you see white horse in scripture, it's usually connected with Jesus somehow, a horse with a rider. It says, he that sateth on him a bow, that is the bow of Judah. He is the lion of Judah. He is from the tribe of Judah. The married bride, the house of Judah still remains with Jesus. So this could be Jesus, and, and a crown was given unto him. That is at after the cross, the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's now seated at the Father, and he has it, he's in his kingdom. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is Mount, reversing Hermon. This is when he tells Peter, the gates of Hades will not stand against me. He is going to go conquer. This is a parallel image of when the, he scoops up the coals off the altar and cast them to the earth and sets the earth on fire. He goes forth to conquer. That is another possible understanding of the rider on the white horse. And that could be a figurative spiritual imagery of the gospel. We set out Judah first. Now I'm going to fill it with the arrow of Ephraim from Zechariah. The imagery is perfect. But Brother Schofield could be right. This is a lot of we don't know. Be comfortable with that. The moment you have to start putting concrete, I know what this is, in order for you to accept it and get it in your head all comfortable, you've just set yourself up for spiritual failure. Because the moment you find out you were wrong about what you thought you knew, you'll question your faith as well. Don't do that to yourself, brothers and sisters. It is okay not to know. It is fine. There, are, Schofield even started multiple ways we could look at this. The second horseman, Revelation 6, verses 3 through 4. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, enmity between peoples throughout the Christian era, and that they should kill one another, murders, genocide, etc., during the Christian era. And there was given unto him a great sword. Well, you see, this is why I tend to break with Schofield here. I thought the sword was the symbol of the gospel. It's also a weapon of war. So we've got to be careful, folks. I, I tend to think that the, the second rider is war. 
but the first rider, I'm I'm not entirely convinced it's not Jesus Yeshua on the horse with the gospel message. Could be both. Could be a combination, could be nothing, could be something entirely different. The third horseman, Revelation 6, 5 through 6, he says, and when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand for counting money or goods. In other words, the materialistic system, economies. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. That's the Greek uh, denarion, actually a day's wages for the working man. In other words, food will be expensive for the poor throughout the Christian era. And see thou hurt not the oil or the wine. Only the rich could afford oil and wine in Yeshua's time. So the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Ain't we got fun? He's being kind of snarky the way I do right there. The fourth horseman, Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. These beasts that are talking to John in this vision, these are the four throne guardians. You meet them in Ezekiel. They got the four different heads. And if you notice the four different heads in Ezekiel, those are the four different standards of the four different sections of the camp of Israel when they're out in the desert. So these are throne guardians. These are seraphim. And I looked and behold, a pale, a green horse. And it does say green. It, it, it's the root word, the root Greek word for chlorophyll, where we get the, that's color green. And his name that sat on him was death. And he followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with a sword when with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. According to Schofield here, his thinking, he says, includes all the deadly diseases, only one fourth part killed by this angel because the other three angels killed the other three fourths of the people. And if you're thinking, well, that proves that Jesus can't be on the white horse. The gospel does kill. It says so. Nah, you don't think the gospel kills? Separate father and son, mother and daughter. Kills spiritually. When the gospel comes and you reject it, oh, this teaching's too hard and many thousands left and fell away. The gospel will kill. Be careful. Be careful. The whole of scripture, folks, swallow it whole. The dead in Christ during the Christian era. This is Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the figuratively, this is the cross, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, both Jew and Gentile believers. And they cried with a loud, cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? In white robes, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them, that's because Jew and Christian alike both looked to the same Messiah. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Not, we've got to collect all the martyrs. Then the end times. This is Revelation 6, beginning in verse 12. It says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of, of hair, or a sackcloth of hair. This is the brilliant righteousness of the Lord Jesus is hidden by the gross sin on the earth, as in the days of Noah. And the moon became as blood. The moon has no light of its own. All it can do is reflect the light of the sun. So this is the church. 
and blood meaning apostate church. And the stars of heaven, fallen angels or apostate church leaders or true leaders. I've quoted that one from, I think it's Amos before. A true teacher is also a star. So they fell onto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her on untimely figs when she is shaken of a, uh, of a mighty wind. Now, this is the next slide where it's Revelation 6, still 12 through 17. Figs are Israel, both physical and spiritually. This is Jeremiah 24, 1 through 10. So church leaders not teaching sound doctrine. That might work here. This could be false teachers falling onto the earth. That works. And the heaven, uh, actually the sky, departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their place. In other words, even strong Bible churches fall away because of false doctrine. All the pillars of the earth are being shaken. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of the mountains. This is all figurative. People refuse to face the reality of God's soon coming judgment on the world. People will curse the sun and hide themselves in caves. Same thing, curse the gospel. Now, they might actually be cursing the real sun, the heat. We're doing that right now. But we're missing the fact that all of this is to wake us up. We're hiding ourselves. He says, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. People totally reject any knowledge of God. And from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, the return of Jesus, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And who shall be able to stand? The seventh seal does not open next. A full count of the Christian era believers, both Jew and Gentile, must be taken first. So he goes to chapter 7. This is a parenthetic. This is, this is a rabbit. This is a scripture rabbit. This is the 144,000. Revelation 7, verses 1 through 10. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. The same four horsemen in Revelation 6. Most likely. Very likely. Holding the four winds on the, uh, of the earth. Winds is trouble. Troubled times in the prophetic language. That the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east. This is Jesus. Having the seal of the living God. This is the beginning of the Christian era, the ascension. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. It says an invisible spiritual seal seen only in this spiritual world. Okay, let's go back for a minute. So he comes up that the four horsemen are going to hold the winds of the earth. This is, the, this is a parallel way of saying we've bound Satan with the chain and thrown him in the pit. He can no longer fool the nations, fool the Gentiles. So that that's, this allows the gospel message to get through to their heart. It allows them to see God, acknowledge God, and repent and come to Jesus. And I'm not going to do anything to them. You can't hurt them until we have gathered all of those servants of God. That is a long period of time. Don't think that that is just something that happens in an hour or two at the very end of time. This is the Christian era. And this is a, uh, if you were watching yet last week's show, remember we saw, I think it was in Chronicles or Kings and in Jeremiah where it showed you that, that they sacked Jerusalem and killed everybody. But Jeremiah, in, his, in the spirit, he sees that they're sealing all the people first, those that belong to God. And they aren't killed. They're preserved through the, through the butchery. That's what we're looking at right here. 
So Revelation picks up again. He says, and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed and 140 and 4,000. It's a figurative number, folks. So everybody who's trying to literally put 140, Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm sorry, man, you've missed the boat. This is not only 144,000 that are ever going to be saved in all of time. Scripture tells you it's tens of tens of thousands. Swallow Scripture whole. You'll protect yourself from lots of heresies. It's a figurative number. It's of all the tribes of the children of Israel, the house of Jacob, all the tribes. It's the redeemed of physical Israel during the Christian era. Book of Revelation continues, of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephtalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Dan's not in there. The tribe of Levi is included because during the Christian era, all believers are kings and priests and Levitical priesthood was done away with in Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 3.14, Revelation 1.6, 5.10. The tribe of Dan is not included in this list. Dan was the first tribe to fall into idolatry, so there may not be any godly Danites left. This, a quick rabbit, you got to go back to the prophetic utterances for Dan, the tribe of Dan back under Israel, uh, Jacob, and then Moses again. Dan leaps from Bashan. If you know what Bashan is, that's the same place Mount Hermon is. That's where Jesus is during the transfiguration. And when he says, you are Peter upon this rock, meaning the rock of the Mount of Hermon, where the gates of Hades were thought to be, he says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says, it's not saying he's going to build his church on Peter. Sorry, Catholics. That is not, not Jesus making Peter the first Pope. That's Jesus saying, you're Peter. And it's a word play. It's Hebrew wordplay translated into Greek. He says, yeah, you're Peter, but upon this rock, the rock where they're standing, the foot of Mount Hermon, I'll build my church on the, I'll build it right over top of Hades. I'll build it right over Satan's ground. In other words, I'm going to steal people from Satan's kingdom. All of this, just when you understand the concepts, it's just, I know I'm not the best one to explain this to you because right now this is just crystal clear in my head. None of this conflicts. Work on this. Pray on this. Seek the Holy Spirit's guidance on this. But this harmonizes so many troublesome passages in Scripture that have led people astray. This puts it all into one nice, neat, easy package. This is the kingdom of Yahweh. That's kingdom language right here, folks. Then he goes into Revelation 7. This is the Gentile church. Revelation 7, starting in verse 11. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, so much for only 144,000. Yes, Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm being a little snarky at you because you need to learn to read your scriptures clearer. No man could number. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, this is the church, the Gentile church, grafted into the house of Israel. They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, you know, palm fronds. And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell down 
before the throne on their faces and worship God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto God forever and ever. Amen. Continued reading on Revelation 7. He says, and one of the elders answered saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence come they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, the Christian era. Remember, Jesus himself says the tribulation ends before the end times start. We went over that. And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, the Gentile church. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The seventh seal isn't opened until after the account of the 144,000 in the Gentile church. Why? Because all of the redeemed need to be counted before the Lord closed the Christian era. The close of the Christian era. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Revelation 8, 1. Half an hour is about a week in a day years. This is speculation. He doesn't prove this in his book or in his slides. This is a guess. And how long did it take the Lord to make the first heaven and earth? About a week. So shouldn't it take the Lord about a week to make the new heaven and earth? Eh, I see where he's thinking. He doesn't prove this, but this is Schofield just trying to wrap his head around this. But look what he's doing. He's using patterns that are already established in Scripture. So, okay, for now, unless somebody gives me something better. Important note, Revelation 7 and Revelation 10 are parenthetics. They're rabbits, scriptural rabbits. Both tell of events that must be fulfilled just before the end of creation as we know it. They appear right before the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet because both events signal the end of the Christian era and all believers of this age are included in the internal king, eternal kingdom. And this is where the seven trumpets start. We're going to give you one more break. And then we're going to come back and we'll do the seven trumpets and we'll wrap them up. And that's where we'll end for today. If you have questions, if this is hurting your brain or you disagree or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's okay. It's all fine. Email me right here. The Road to Concord. Joe at theroadtoconcord.com. I'll try to help you through it. I do have access to more information than just this. I know we're going through this at a rather rapid rate. This is just to get you interested. This is a, uh, here's where you start. I'm handing you the end of a thread and telling you where to go with it. Why do I teach this? Because this is, in my opinion, closest to the proper way to handle prophecy as anything I have ever seen. Schofield's not telling you for sure. Now, he doesn't, in the slideshow, he doesn't go through all of his hypotheticals and it could be's and everything else. He doesn't do as much of that. In this, it's filled with them. He admits his doubts and he says, I don't know. It could, I could be wrong. He tells you that a lot in the book. But what he's telling you is look for the theological message first, then the physical manifestation, because there could be many physical manifestations because the theological thing issue, the theological point is repetitive in nature in the Hebrew mind. 
a, a near and far fulfillment of a prophecy, and sometimes several times in between. The stiff-necked nature of God's people having to totally be renewed over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. That's a, that's a rep repeating prophecy. This doesn't peg your entire faith on, this is the interpretation I can try. No, no, no. It doesn't peg your faith on that. The way Schofield handles prophecy, he uses the scripture to interpret scripture. He uses the theological messages, the concept studies that are in scripture. And he tries to use them as best he can to increase your faith, to give you a solid foundation so that if your understanding turns out to be wrong, you go, well, you know what? It doesn't matter. I was looking for a physical manifestation. The theological, the spiritual understanding is still, still solid, still stands. I got the physical wrong, but that's okay. Cause the message from heaven was that didn't get wrong. That doesn't destroy your faith. When something goes wrong, that builds it. That's why I teach this understanding of prophecy. Also, when you look at what he's doing with his formula, OMG, if this does not tell me that the prophetic language is dead on target, I have never seen anybody explain Daniel's 70 weeks or the prophetic times. Any Schofield hits the center of the V-ring. And if you're not a shooter, you don't understand, but that is dead center bullseye. And to me, that affirms the patterns, 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 patterns. So when we come back, we'll blow some trumpets. See you in six.
Charlie's over there dancing. Well, not so much today, but usually does. All right, we got to get going because we got 31 slides to cover between now and the end of the show. And we go over a little bit if we have to. We're going to finish the trumpets. And then the last seal, I think he does all of that. We're going to get all the way up to the bowls of wrath before we quit today. If you are into this, you might want to rewatch this show later on this weekend because this one's going to be, we're going to get into this. There's, there's a lot to cover here. All right. Still, still Ellis Schofield. And we're going to be into the Revelations trumpets are the, you know, in the first chiasm. All right. So we're still in the first chiasm. This is chapters eight and nine. This is the second B. The first B is the seven seals. The second B is the seven trumpets, Christian era and trials. And we've already seen this before. So we, what we have to do is understand typology in the Levitical code. Typology, you know, like seven days in a week, seven years in a, in a, in a uh, Shemitah, and then, you know, seven Shemitahs in a Jubilee year. Th this is patterns from the Levitical code. You must understand if the law is gone, well, then give up on trying to interpret scripture properly because you need parts of the law of Moses to understand this stuff. You have to, you got to know the old Testament. When Paul tells you to read the, the scriptures to affirm everything, you know, be a good berry and dig in the scriptures. He ain't talking about New Testament homes, brothers and sisters. There's no new Testament. When Paul writes that letter, he's saying, dig into the Tanakh, the old Testament. It's all there. So introduction to the seven trumpets. This is revelation eight verses two through six. And he says, and I saw the seven angels, which stood before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel, being Jesus, came and stood at the altar. Those seven angels might also be the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, the seven can, uh, lampstands. Seven is the number of perfection. So he stands at the altar, which is the cross, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense. Incense is a Levitical figure for prayer. And Jesus continually prays for the saints. This is Hebrews 7.25 that he should offer it with uh, the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers and the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar, the gospel, and cast it on the earth. This is a figure figurative of the crucifixion, Luke 12, 49. So this places the sounding of the first trumpet at the beginning of the Christian era. I want to add right here before we continue reading. When Jesus says, I have come to set fire to the earth, and oh, how I wish that it were already kindled, he's talking about this event. He was looking forward to the future. He's prophesying. He's about to cast fire onto the earth. So we pick back up in Revelation. It says, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake, and the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. The fall of the Coptic church. There used to be three major branches to the Christian church. The Coptic, founded by James, headquartered in Jerusalem, spread throughout the Middle East and North Africa. The last of the Coptic church died under Barack Obama's reign. Now look into that sometime, folks. The Eastern Orthodox, once centered in Constantinople, now centered in Athens, in Greece, the Balkans, and the Russia. If it weren't for Constantinople and the Eastern Orthodox Church, we would have lost Christianity when Rome fell. The Roman or Western church spread throughout the rest of the world by various denominations. Though a few small isolated pockets remain, Islam virtually destroyed the great Coptic church. The first four trumpets are repetitive pictures of how God and the Fa God the Father sees the Christian era. Also, with as far as Islam, it, it 
almost wiped out the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church as well at one point. There used to be five churches. There were, in the scripture mentions, the five uh, bishops. Then um, they were all called Catholic churches. That's in the scriptures. What becomes known as the Holy Roman Catholic Church is when that one seems to think it needs to be over its four brothers. Just a little quick rabbit history for you. So the first four trumpets, Revelation 8, verse 7 through 11, repeated pictures of spiritual conditions in, the, in John's world during the times of the Gentiles. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. This is some type of figurative language used by Pete, the same type of figurative language used by Peter in Acts 2, verses 19 through 20, to describe the crucifixion. So this is a figurative picture of the cross, and I believe Peter was also quoting Joel in that, that passage. And the third part of the trees was burnt up, and all the grass was burnt up. Shortly after the cross and the church in the Middle East falls into the false doctrine. Remember, <clears throat> excuse me, trees figurative here of great people, great men in the prophetic language, and grass is figurative of people, men themselves, men and women. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, sea of people, Revelation 17, 15. And the third part of the sea became blood, false doctrine. And the third part of the creatures were in the sea, blood being apostasy, sin, and had life, died, died spiritually. And the third part of the ships, which is prophetic language for churches, were destroyed. It says there were three branches to the church, Roman, the Byzantine, and the Coptic. The Coptic church centered in Jerusalem became idolatrous. This is all spiritual first. There will be many physical manifestations of this pattern, this spiritual first, folks, spiritual first. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star. The stars are messengers, Revelation 1.20. Star from heaven, and foretold by Jesus in Luke 10.18, this is Satan. It's burning as it were a lamp, and fell unto the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of the waters. In other words, the true gospel. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, which is a poisonous tree. And the third part of the waters of the gospel became wor wormwood. False doctrine of Islam is taught. I like this. This works. And many men died spiritually of the waters because they were made bitter. The false doctrines being taught could not save souls. And the fourth angel sounded. And the third part of the sun was smitten. The error of Islam was so gro gross that the brilliant light of the Lord Jesus could no longer be seen in the Middle East. And the third part of the moon, the church is destroyed by Islam. And the third part of the stars, the messengers, our pastors, priests, preachers, are replaced by Islamic imams. So is that the third part of them was darkened, and that the day shone not for a third part of it, and night likewise. Folks, roughly one-third of the world is Muslim today. Revelation 8.13, And I beheld, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of the heaven. This is the middle heaven. This is what we would call the sky saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. The first woe, Revelation 9, verse 1 through 12. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. Jesus did not fall. He ascended and descended. So this falling angel is Satan, Luke 10, 18. Repetition, folks. We're going back. This is why Revelation sometimes looks, sounds like it talks in circles, because it does. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit. And there arose a smoke, a false religions, out of the pit. 
and the smoke of great furnace in the, in the sun. The sun is Jesus, Malachi 4.2. And the air was darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. The brilliant light of the gospel could no longer be heard in the Middle East because of the smoke of the false doctrine of Islam. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, Islamic jihadists, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power, to spiritually poison unto death. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. Islam was not able to convert the true saints. Folks, whether you want to accept this or not, this, spiritually, this fits perfectly. This is when Satan opens the pit. His, his minions are allowed to run around and start fooling the nations. This works. It, it might have more than one, one interpretation. Don't get me wrong. This fits Islam to a T. If you've studied Islam, if you've read the Quran and the Hadith, and this fits it to a T. If you know its history, this is perfect. Revelation 9, 1 through 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. But only those men which have not the seal of God in their forehead, those who would remain unsaved, even if they heard the gospel, those can be hurt. And to them, it was given that they should not kill, spiritually destroy them, the church, but that they should be tormented five months. Five months is 152 years. It was 152 years from the beginning of the first jihad until the Islamic Khalifa Harun at Rashid made peace with the Western nations. That's true. And then their torment was at the torment of a scorpion where he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. Men who did not convert to Islam were made slaves while their women were put into harems. That's true. And the scripture continues, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. The jihadis were primarily a cavalry army. That's true. Arabians are known for their horse, horsemanry. And on their heads were as it were like a crown of uh, a crowns like gold. They golden turbans. And their faces were the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, long hair. And their teeth were like the teeth of lions, extremely fierce warriors. Also, a lot of the early era Muslims would sh sharpen their teeth into points. And they had breastplates as if it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was that of the sounds of chariots of many horses. Islamic armies were composed primarily of horsemen, horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions like unto figurative language and there were there were stings in their tails a spiritual death as they converted people to islam and their power was to hurt men five months see we've repeated again same five months and they had a king over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the hebrew tongue is Abad, uh, abaddon the destroyer a satanic angel or satan himself but in the greek tongue has his name Apollyon or Apollyon, one woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. An hour, day, month, year. Hmm. The second woe. This is Revelations 9, verses 13 through 15 from the King James Bible. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. This gives us a geographical location, the Middle East, Euphrates being in Syria and runs between Iraq and Iran. And the four angels were loosed 
which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. But these four angelic messengers are not identified right away. They could be the ones that were holding back the four winds until such time as the Christian era was over, the tribulation was over. I don't know. Let's find out. A parenthetic comes first before they're identified. Revelation, in other words, we're going to chase another scripture rabbit. Revelation 10 now foretells the close of the Christian era. John has handed the little book of Revelation, but does not start to read the other side of the two-sided scroll. That's the second chiasm. Until the total of the redeemed are counted in the two witnesses. Chapter 11. The redeemed are then taken to be with the Lord at the last trumpet. Revelation 11.15, which ends time as we know it. Time as a, as a, a physical manifestation or dimension. <clears throat> Revelation 10, verses 1 through 11. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, arrayed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as the sun, and his feet are as pillars of fire. This matches the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. So this angel is Jesus. It's also the description. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. Excuse me. It's also very close to the description of the angel that um, explains things to Daniel. Uh, uh, in connection with what we're doing right now. And he said, and he had in his hand a little book open. The little two-sided book of Revelation given to Jesus by God the Father at the beginning of the Christian era, Revelation 5, 1 through 7. And he set his right foot upon the sea, this is of people, Revelation 17, 15, and his left foot upon the earth, physical creation, showing that Jesus has total authority over both. And he cried, with a great voice as a lion, the lion of Judah, roareth. And when he cried, the seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Sealed because Revelation 10.1 is foretelling the return of Jesus. And God does not want to prematurely reveal events that are going to take place in his eternal kingdom. And the angel, Jesus, that I saw standing upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created the heavens and the things that are therein and the earth and the things that are therein and the sea and the things that are therein, that there shall be time. Uh, the Greek, chronos, defined as time. A Greek word for delay for the from the same root, chronizio, if God intended this verse to be about delay, he used the wrong Greek word to express it. There shall be time no longer. In other words, at the second coming, time as a natural phenomenon will be non-existent for the redeemed. We will instantly be in timeless eternity. So much for the millennial reign after the second coming. It's scripturally killed right there. But none of us want to pay attention to scripture, do we? It says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, salpizo, the sound of a trumpet, then in, it, it then is finished. This is tell Eho, uh, brought to a final and complete end, the mystery of God. The whole mystery of God is over right before that trumpet sounds. According to the good tidings, which he declared to his servants, the prophets. No prophets excluded. So all prophecy relating to this age will be fulfilled at the last trumpet. That last trumpet's got to be blowing after Jesus returns. 
shortly thereafter, but after. Otherwise, the prophets aren't fulfilled. This is all going to, and you know how that can work? If that trumpet blows as he returns, time ceases to happen to be anymore. That's a discussion we'll have to have all on our own sometime. I love that one, but folks, I don't think most people properly understand what that means. Revelation continues. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard it again speaking with me and saying, go, take the book which is in open in the hand of the angel that standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. So Jesus, who has opened the seven seals, hands the book of Revelation to John. And I went unto the angel, saying unto him that he should give me the little book. And he saith unto me, take it and eat it up, which is a Hebrew idiom, meaning figuratively, study it carefully and embrace it. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but in thy mouth it shall taste sweet as honey. Understanding the word of God is sweet to believers, but the trials and troubles these scriptures foretell bring sadness to the soul. And boy, do I know many a believer who has lost their way when they ran into that sadness. It's just more than they can handle. I have great compassion and pity for them. Revelation continues. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my belly was made bitter. And they said unto me, thou must prophesy again. Greek, palin, defined as go back or repeat once more. Turn over the scroll and read the other side. Scrolls written on two sides were very unusual in their day. This is over many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You must prophesy again over the Gentile world. So John is commanded to read the other side of this two-sided scroll, the second chiasm beginning in Revelation 12, and it will be about peoples, nations, languages, and rulers of the world as known to the prophet, i.e. the Middle East. Now, back to those four angels. Remember, Schofield's not reading Revelation to you and I in linear order. He's reading according to the chiasm. Keep that in mind. He's going according to the thought, not the linear straight A to B, A to Z word. He's reading the thinking. He has learned to think Hebrew. Revelation 9, verses 13 through 15, King James Version. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns, Revelation 4, 6 through 7, of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound through prayer. The church bound the works of Satan, Matthew 16, 19. And, the great, and that's why when the church lays down, when Jacob lays down, Esau shakes off his chains. They were bound in the great river Euphrates. This gives the geographical location, the Middle East. The Euphrates begins in Syria, runs between Iraq and Iran. But when the Coptic church went into apostasy and no longer spiritually bound Satan, he and his angels were loosed to attack the Holy Land. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. The second woe is fulfilled by those four angels. But what did they do? <clears throat> Time ends when the last trumpet blows in Revelation eleven fifteen. So these four angels must be released between Revelation 14 and Revelation Revelation 9, 14 and 11, 15. But if they were released during the Christian era, when did it happen? Searching Revelation 9, 13 through 11, 15, do you see those angels anywhere? It says, take a look. Yes and no. 
says, oops, no four angels. But there's another clue to their identity. Time. The hour, day, month, and year. Revelation 9.14. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. We know that the Euphrates River runs through the Middle East. So these angels are released from within the heart of Islam. Revelation 11.2. Gentiles tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Revelation 11.3. Witnesses prophesy in the Gentile world for 1260 days. Revelation 11.13. In that hour, there was a great spiritual earthquake. These three messengers relate to Islam in the Holy Land. But where is the year? Spiritual results of the angels loosed. Revelation 9, 17 through 19. Schofield is playing super sleuth with scripture. He's searching scripture for hints and clues as to the solutions, you know, the, the answers to these questions based on what he's already established. So if you haven't done the rest of the shows with us, a lot of this is probably not ringing to you. You're not tracking with us. That's why we told you to go back and review. Revelation 9, beginning in verse 17. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. But these, but these three was the third part of men killed by these three. So before the first jihad, there were three major branches of the church. The Coptic centered in Jerusalem, Eastern Orthodox centered in Constantinople, and the Roman church headquartered in Rome. Islamic armies virtually destroyed the Coptic church, and thus was a third part of men killed spiritually. By the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone, all figures of false religion of Islam, which issued out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tail, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Army of the enemy, Revelation 9.16. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. In Greek, this is uh, duo murius murius, defined as two times innumerably many. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't really say a thousand in Greek. In other words, 200 more than I can count. And I heard the number of them. So who are these horsemen? The almost two billion Muslims who have been a plague on the rest of the world ever since the days of Muhammad. Because every Muslim is a jihadi, at least every male Muslim, according to Muhammad. You can disagree. It's fine. I got it. A lot of people think this is the Chinese army. But it also fits Islam perfectly. Remember, in the Hidden Beast 2, the book, Brother Schofield had not learned enough about Islam yet. By the time he does this slideshow, he knows Islam. Islam is God's judgment on the church, just as Assyria was God's judgment on the northern kingdom. Didn't we cover that last week? I mean, yesterday even. Yeah. Oh, anyhow, back to the slideshow. Revelation 9, 20 through 21. And the rest of the men which were not killed, the Eastern Orthodox and Roman churches, by these plagues, yet repented not of their works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood. We have different idols today. 
TV, a new car, a bigger home, a power boat, a better job, different material things, but they are idols just the same, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murderers. The Roman church killed millions during the Middle Ages, nor of their sorceries. In Greek, this is pharmakia, defined medication, i.e., drug abuse, be it alcohol or any other mind-altering substance, or possibly all pharmaceuticals that are not plant-based, possibly, nor of their fornications, divorce, remarriage, and casual sex, the hookup culture, nor of their thefts, but the year, where is it? Schofield keeps going, but the year, but the year, hidden in Haruma. It's an ambiguous coinine Greek word that can be translated moment, day, time, or year, depending on the context. In the NASB translation, this is Strong's number 2250-2250G, it's translated year in 12 verses. If three and a half hemera are three and a half years, then three and a half times 365 equals 1,278 and a third days, day years. From the Dome of the Rock to a free Jerusalem is exactly 1,278.34 years. View it that way. We can now understand the rest of Revelation 11. Stop real quick. Real fast. I want you to understand what Schofield just did. He's looking at a pattern that he's already established. He's trying to figure out what this year is. So he's looking at something that he's already established scripturally. He's not just making something up that works for him. He's using patterns that we've already established to try and interpret. He's using an established scriptural pattern to try and interpret more scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. This is sound, consistent, coherent hermeneutics. I like this a lot. He's not making stuff up. He's being consistent. This is one of the reasons I really like what Schofield's doing here. It's one of the reasons he won me over to it. Logically, this man is batting down. He's tight. He has some areas that he's just, you know, he argues from ignorance, but he didn't know. But if you follow him from Hidden Beast, Hidden Beast 2, Sozo to this slide, he grows and it shows. So back to his, back to his Revelation 11. Let's look and see what we have. The three and a half years. Revelation 11, starting in verse 8. Now he's using the NAS um, translation. And their dead bodies, this is Greek, Potoma, by definition, a fall, a ruin, the carcass, the bones, the empty churches. Notice, we say dead bodies in English, and it gets us thinking some ways. We should look at the Greek. It means a fall or a ruin, a carcass. It can mean dead bodies, but it doesn't have to. So their dead bodies, spiritually, the ruins, will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. That's Jerusalem, folks. Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Jerusalem. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations, the Muslims and the surrounding lands, will look at their dead bodies, the empty churches, for three and a half days, years of day years, 688 A.D. to 1967 A.D., and will not permit their dead bodies, the empty churches, to be laid in a tomb, to be torn down or repaired. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets, the Christian and Jews, tormented those who dwelled on the earth. 
It is torment for the, the non-believer when the gospel is preached and they refuse to repent. This fits perfectly. Perfectly. Just falls right into place. I like that. I accept it. That's me. You don't have to. Spiritual death of the witnesses. Revelation eleven seven, And when they, the two witnesses, shall have finished their testimony among the Gentile nations, 48 through 67, the beast, Satan, that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make spiritual war against them and shall overcome them spiritually with materialism, false doctrine, and cares of this world and kill them spiritually. Isn't that verse an accurate picture of the spiritual condition of the church in the West today? Amen, amen, and amen, brother. Yes, it is. It's a, as in the days, in the, we have never in the history of man since Noah's time fit this description any better. So Luke 18, 7 and 8, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he findeth faith on earth. Will there be faith that saves on earth when he returns? In every age, God has given the church its most effective message for that particular time. John Messenger, or message, John Huss, the Bible should be the only source for doctrine. That's from the Bohemian Revival. Martin Luther, the just shall live by faith, Reformation in Germany. John Calvin, the kingdom of God, the Reformation in Switzerland. The Puritans, Christians shall live a righteous life. That's the Reformation in England. John Knox, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. It's the beginning of foreign missions. That's the gospel of the kingdom. All great revivals began with a new opening of God's word. The same is true today, but most churches are bound by lethargy and tradition. This is why we've got to start learning the history of the church, people. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or you're going to spend eternity in a lake of fire doesn't work very well in this hedonistic, materialistic, TV-oriented society because most people don't believe the Bible anymore. This is Schofield talking. However, when people see how the Bible predicted a major event during the Christian era and at the end of all things is at hand, you don't need to beat them over the head with the gospel. They ask exactly what Paul's prison guard asks, sir, what must I do to be saved? Revelation is God's end-time evangelical tool for the church. It's the greatest opening of God's word since the New Testament was written, if it is handed, handled properly, respectfully. We need to reach these lost people for the Lord, and Bible prophecy can do that. These are not lost, folks. These are non-believers. The lost, if you look in Scripture, are those who once believed and then wandered away. I, I've tested that. I've never found lost used in the New Testament to refer to non-believers. It refers to backsliders. Still, it's still it, it's acceptable, but make sure you know the difference. So we're back to the book of Revelation in the third woe. Revelation 11, verse 11 through 15. And after the three and a half days, after Jerusalem was freed of the Gentile control in 1967, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood up on their feet. In New Israel, God's people are again welcome in all of Jerusalem's synagogues and churches. And great fear fell upon them, Muslims, who are beholding them. 
And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, saints, both Jew and Gentile, taken to be with the Lord, still in the future, compared with the come up here of Revelation 4.1. Most people read this passage and they think they come alive and then they're immediately raptured. It doesn't give us any timeline between when they wake up, when they come back to life and when they're raptured. Schofield continues, Revelation 11.11. And they went up into heaven in the clouds and their enemies beheld them and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the seventh angel sounded. Ha, there you go. The last trumpet. And there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of the world are become the kingdom of our Lord. Not becoming, become. And of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Scripturally, there will be no seven-year great tribulation or thousand-year millennium following the last trumpet. Instead, we are instantly translated or transported into the eternal kingdom of God, just as Revelation 11.15 plainly declares. Use scripture to interpret scripture. This is where we're going to end today, with the bowls of wrath. That's where he's going to go next. There's a lot today. We took off a big chunk of um, Schofield's slides. We are now going to be ending on slide 431 of 499. Hopefully we'll wrap up in the next two weeks. Just in time to talk about the fall feasts right before they're over. <laughs> Goes hand in hand if you understand, if you know, if you're spiritually awake to what's going on in the world. But this is where we're going to end for today. If you have questions, email us. We'll help. You don't have to accept this. You are free to reject it. All I'm going to ask you to do is study it real quick before you do that. You should not be afraid of opposing ideas. If you're correct, they can't harm you. If you were wrong, they might save you from heresy or apostasy. Just test it against scripture. Schofield will take you to scripture over and over and over again. If you read this book, you're going to get a tour de force of prophecy. If you read The Unseen Realm, you're going to get a tour de force of, of those the prophetic word and of the parts of Scripture that explain the divine council worldview and the, in the Hebrew mindset. If you read uh, The Scepter and the Birthright, oh my gosh, are you going to get a tour de force of the prophecies dealing with Ephraim and Judah? All the books I bring you, out of somewhere between 25 and 35% of them are scripture. They're citing the scriptures in the book. They don't tell you to go read it. They, they quote it for you. Study your scriptures. Test all of this stuff. All I'm telling you is that for me, for Joe, where I am in my life, my understanding, with the way I was made and my ability to use logic on things, this is the best I have found yet. Spiritual first, then the material. And so far, I can't poke holes in the bulk of his argument. I've already told you where I differ with him on a few things. But the core of his argument, for me, perfect. Not perfect as in eternally, biblically, you know, heaven perfect. As far as man can understand, as close as I think we're going to get until it has happened and we can look back on it and see it clearer. Tomorrow, we're going to deal with conspiracy theory, one that I'm a little miffed with. 
we're just going to ask some questions and I'm going to explain some engineering to some folks and y'all can yell at me and throw darts at me and toss your suckers in the ground and stomp around and get mad and tell me I'm an idiot. But for once, I'm going to push back against a conspiracy theory and I'm going to push hard. Remember, I only lack 12 hours, three classes to be able to sit for my mechanical engineering degree, three classes in a lab. I understand what I'm going to be bringing to you tomorrow. It'll be fun. We love each and every one of you. We thank you for being here. If you like what we're doing, please share it with people. Just set them up and let them know what they're looking at. Tell them that I'm a pain in the butt and I'm a obnoxious little individual. Focus on the information, not the messenger. And in this case, by all means, focus on the, on the object. Yahweh, the Father. Him and his prophetic word and his prophets, his son. Not on me, not on Ellis. If Ellis were still alive, he wouldn't want you looking at him either. Until tomorrow, y'all stay safe. Thank you for being up. Oh, comment on the board real quick. <laughs> if you bring suckers, make sure their ring pops, Natasha. <laughs> y'all stay safe. Take care of yourself. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye -bye. <laughs>